It's now time for Talkin' Boxing with Billy C. It began as a podcast, went live on the net, and transformed into a full-blown empire. It's the only daily boxing talk show on the planet, hosted by the only guy with the balls to do it. Many have stepped into the ring. Many have tried to take the belt. And one by one, they've fallen. Another victim of the undisputed heavyweight champion of Boxing Talk Radio. Talking Boxing with Billy C is on now. My style is impetuous. My defense is impregnable. And I'm just ferocious. I want your heart. Coming to you live from the Billy C. Studios in Lake George in New York. I'm Bill Calagero, and it's time for the Billy C. Show. Good morning, good day, good evening. Whenever you're listening, I hope you're doing okay today. Today, we got a busy show scheduled for you today. And uh, But first, today's show is being brought to us in part by Sal's Neighborhood Pizzeria and Italian Restaurant located on St. Simon's Island in Georgia. Check out the website, www.salsneighborhoodpizzeria.com or give my man a call, 912-268-2328. 912-268-2328. Find out why I go all the way to St. Simon's to get an authentic Italian meal. Today's show is also being brought to us in part by Fight TV. You can catch our show on demand on Fight TV. Check it out. That's F-I-T-E. Dot TV, Fight TV, and uh, don't forget about downloading our free app. You can uh, click the link on BillyCBoxing.com. And uh, one last thing, Fight TV is your place to watch all the fights you can't see on U.S. television. Uh, so uh, we have it all set for you. Whether they're free, whether they're pay-per-views, whether they're specials, whatever, we have an uh, embedded uh, video player right on the front page of billycboxing.com so you can watch everything Fight TV has to offer right there. So, you know, it's a one-stop shop, man. And finally, today's show is being brought to us in part by my book. Tom Molino from Bondage to Baddest Man on the Planet is available right now where all good books are sold. You can get a copy of it right now where you're watching or listening to this show. Just go to barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com. Looking to get a signed copy? Visit our website, www.billycboxing.com, and click on the book. You can't miss it. It's uh, right there on the front page. But uh, Anyway, coming up a little later, we got uh, Boxing Hall of Fame Larry Hazard scheduled to join us. Uh, we'll be getting his thoughts on the fights from uh, this past weekend. And also, uh, our blast from the past this week, uh, Alex Papali will be by to uh, tell us all about as per request, because we try to keep you guys uh, happy, Edwin Valerio. We'll be talking about him, uh, so uh, don't go anywhere. But uh, let's kick off the show. Some more updates on Anthony Joshua. My man, AJ, been seeing a lot of stuff about him in the press, how he's uh, the face of boxing, how he's changed the, bo- the sport of boxing, and you know everybody loves him. Uh, and thanks to my man Johnston, uh, who, uh, by the way, you can catch his column up on BillyCBoxing.com. Uh, he has been uh, forwarding me Anthony Joshua's daily uh, diary that's been being posted uh, on uh, uh, on the local newspaper over in uh, England. 
And um, I got part two of it right now. But first, joining me uh, from St. Simon's Island uh, is my man uh, uh, Sal Rocky Senecola. Good morning, Sal. Good morning, Billy. How are you today, buddy? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, got some more uh, stuff on Anthony Joshua. You ready to hear from this class act or what? I am ready to hear from this class act, and he surely is just that. There's no question about that, so check this out. Um, we got uh, the second part of uh, Anthony Joshua's pre-fight diary. Thanks to my man, uh, Johnston Brown. Uh, it is uh, being uh, published uh, in England in the newspaper, so uh, uh, let me uh, read it right now. And, and keep in mind, this is from... Anthony Joshua. This is Anthony Joshua uh, writing uh, the diary. He says, uh, Wembley Stadium uh, and Vladimir Klitschko are central to how I'm feeling this week. It's a night that's still crucial to me in many ways. He's referring to his fight uh, with uh, Vladimir Klitschko that is still etched in his mind, which I find interesting. He says, uh, I would have loved to have had the rematch around uh, about now, but I respect his decision to retire He's had an incredible career. That was the first time I'd been uh, into the championship rounds uh, in my professional career. I always wondered what it was like to go into those later rounds, what it was like to get knocked down, and now I've experienced uh, both, and I can relate it uh, to my opponents like Carlos uh, Takam, for example, when I watch their fights and I try to use it to my advantage. There was nothing nasty in the buildup with us, and it didn't need to be. The stage was set at Wembley for a massive occasion, and we delivered. The night was perfect for me, the stadium, the moment, and even the weather. There was traffic on the North Circular uh, on the way there, and people were bumping their, uh, beeping their horns and waving at me. Uh, some people go through their careers without having to show grit. Others don't. I had to go through it against Vladimir and show myself, not anyone else, that I could dig deep and pull through from a bad place. You can't prepare for hitting a canvas. You don't train or practice getting knocked down. There's nowhere to hide, and you can talk and talk and talk, uh, but it's who you are that gives you the character to get through that. On that night, it was the time for me to prove how much heart I had. Vladimir and I were matched well on ability, technique, and speed. It all just came down to desire. We needed to show who wanted it more. Uh, even though he lost, he showed that he had st uh, a lot of fight left in him. I had to get rid of all of that respect I had for him and turn it into a dog fight. I put him, uh, I put it on him in the fifth, and when I put him down, uh, I roared to the crowd's, crowd because I thought I'd, I'd done it. I turned around, and like the Terminator, Vladimir rose to give it his last push. I swung a few big shots and slipped him and uh, started fighting back when we went into the sixth, and he put me down. I told him that if he let me get out of that round, I'd knock him out. I got back to the corner, and I felt my energy come back, and I, t was, and I told him that I warned him that this was going to come. It took me a few... Uh, Took me a few rounds to figure out the combinations he was throwing as he threw to his right hand. I was trying to go under the body to slow him down and let the left uh, with my left and just naturally rotate. And what comes after that? The uppercut. After I landed it, uh, I took a look at him to see if he was hurt because I didn't want to expend any uh, excess energy if he had ridden the punch well. Uh, but I thought, let's roll the dice here, and I unloaded on him. Even when he went down and got up, he was still rolling back and throwing, but I was catching him clean. He went down again, and I looked back, and he would got up. I hit him with another barrage of punches. The referee stepped in, said enough is enough. I hope you don't mind the reflection. It's a fight that defines me this week against Takam, 
my first fight since that April night. It'll define me in my career, a night to give me strength this week. Um, You know, Sal, first of all, I I love the fact that we're getting these from my man Johnston. You know, I don't see it anywhere here in the States, so I I appreciate that. But, but, you know, I, I can't help but think... And he said it right right as he started the diary, Sal, that he still is thinking about the Klitschko fight. Um, I, I'm taking it like, you know, he's still using it as a as a source of, of energy to, to help him through. How do you see it? Do, do, do you see that he's, I mean, shouldn't it be letting it, shouldn't it be put, shouldn't he be putting it behind him? Billy. Good question and good point. But I will tell you, in every successful fighter's career on a world-class level, there's always that one fight that defines who he is and he's proud of and he can use as an emotional recall to understand what he put his, his body through and where his mind was to recall and to prepare I think it's genuine. I think it's uh, respectful. I think it's a great insight. And I have even more respect for him uh, that he sh- did share it. You know, I, I could tell you, there, like I said, there is one fight that a fighter can recall that he feels that defined who he is inside, where he had to dig deep, where he had to come back against the odds, and where he proved to be who he was. That's why... That's why I sometimes say, you know, some of these fighters like Deontay Wilder, maybe maybe there's a moment in the future for him to feel that same thing. And when you look back at that kind of fight that you you experienced and that you felt so proud, so good, yet humble, yes, it can be a motivator. It can be an instruction tool. It can be a programmed outline of you knowing that there's no limit of how deep you can dig to gain a victory if your heart and your passion your focus and your blinders are on and i can empathize and i understand where he's coming from so he's using that as like holy smoke i did this i pulled through this i know i could do anything else i need to do to beat anybody it's a pump it's a it's a genuine recall that he's going through from a fight that he feels really truly defined him who he was in the ring at that night with Vladimir Klitschko and how he dug deep to be the one who was standing at the end of the fight. So I, I give him praise, and I, I could see what he means when he thinks back at this fight. It's not like he should move on. He is moving on. But what he's doing is using that as a benchmark to say, hey, I've been there. I arrived. I am who I am, and I can take this, and I can do anything. So it's a good confidence builder. It really is. You know, I, I- I, I have never reached uh, the level of success as Anthony Joshua has, and I never will. And I've never been uh, an, an athlete, at, you know, a superstar athlete, uh, and, and I never will. But from what I understand, I mean, and, and I hear it over and over and over in every sport, not just boxing, but every sport, you know, the quarterback that throws the interception – you know, the first thing that they're told, you know, put it behind you. To, you know, you, you got the next play. Forget it. You know, uh, uh, I, I remember, um, you know, when I did play football, it's like you, you play for the down. You make a mistake, 
move on, you know, and boxing is no different, you know, okay, you had a bad round, that round's over, now let's start the fight again, you know, or, or let's move on to the next round, um, and with that said, I, I get what you're saying, and I, and I and I agree with you, but with that said, I'm saying to myself, you know, here's Anthony Joshua, uh, pretty much a guy that's got a lot of pressure on him, uh, because, you know, I, I, we've always said, as goes the heavyweight division, so goes boxing, and Anthony Joshua is the heavyweight division right now, and in, in, at least in my opinion. And, you know, here he is. He, he's got a last-minute sub in Carlos Takam, and, uh, you know, it, it clearly is going to be a different uh, fight than what he was preparing for against Kubat Pulev. And, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, is here he is reflecting on, on the Klitschko fight. Um you know, all of those feelings and emotions, I, I get that he's experienced and felt, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I, I, I guess I'm missing where I see the connection. I mean, I, yes, like you said, you know, uh, you know, he's saying, hey, if I got through that, if I got up against, you know, the guy who was running the, the heavyweight division and, and put him down and showed him that I had the heart and the resistance. And yes, I made it into those championship rounds and I and I crossed all these thresholds that I was wondering about. Um, you know, and he's still thinking about it. Is shouldn't he be putting it behind him and start focusing on uh, Tarlo, uh, Carlos Takam? I mean, I, this is the fight at hand. It's a couple of days away. Um, I, I just may, maybe I'm totally wrong. Maybe I'm misreading it. But what, what do you think? I think you may be misreading it or misinterpreting it in a sense. I mean, he's sharing. His inner soul, his essence, his thoughts that as I as I reflected back and, you know, like I said, that fight, the 10 round main event fight I had down with that Robert Choo Choo Dixon is the first time I had the bloodbath war and uh, 135 stitches four cuts, two perforated eardrums, separated retina. Doctor wanted to stop the fight three times. I wouldn't let them. I told him I, I can go on and I beat him a 10 round unanimous decision. And, and that fight to me, after that fight, looking back. And I said to myself, anybody else is nothing. You know, it's compared. I really realized that, you know, wow, this was 10 rounds. I punched bell to bell. It was a war, and it was great, and I loved it. And if any one fight that I can recall, uh, I would like people to see that fight. But the bottom line is this. Anthony Joshua, like I said, he's confident. He's a champion. That fight to him means he arrived. He, he feels like... He is who he is, and he belongs in the heavyweight championship division. Uh, I mean, with that belt around him. And not that he doubted himself before, but that's the first time, as he shared with everybody, that he had to go into the later rounds, that he had to get up off the canvas. So he knows that he was able to recall and to dig deep uh, to his soul, to his courage, to his, uh, believe me, you know, it's like you got to fight that one more round. You come off that stool. It's not over. Boxing on that level, it, it, you have to be so focused, so into the fight because you're <laughs> – you think about it. You have nothing else to, to think about to do. You can't run. You can't hide. You're going back to your stool. You're going to get up off that off that stool, and you're going out to face another opponent. And it's it's grueling. In the late rounds like that, and surely, surely, you don't fight or fight. You you do that. You just stand and you fight. And like I said, this is the first time he had to pick himself up off the canvas. He didn't know what that was like before. As we say, we don't practice falling down and getting up. 
uh, that's one thing in this barn. We, you know, we, we try to uh, not have to recall. And his conditioning, how he said when he re- went back to the corner, he felt himself getting better and, and, and uh, feeling more energetic. Uh, so these are things that he's is saying to himself, hey, I did it. I've been there. I could do it. I could beat anybody. So uh, no, I know I give him a pass on that, Bill. I think he got past the Klitschko fight and he is focusing on to come. But I think he's using that as a proud moment in his life saying, wow, this is what I accomplished. And this guy is going to be, as as, uh, as Hyman Roth would say about Clemenza, ah, small potatoes. You know, I, I think he's, he, he's fine with this. I, I give him credit for even sharing it with us. You know, I got some more uh, quotes from Anthony Chashi, who was on a conference call uh, yesterday, last night. And, um, you know, uh, keep it in mind, you know, Anthony Joshua was only 28 years old. He's 19-0. and 0. All of his fights ended via a knockout. So he's 19-0 and 0 in 19 knockouts. And for all the people that don't think that he's fought anybody, you know, with the exception of Klitschko, all you got to do is look at his resume. I mean, he's he has fought the best available fighters uh, to him. Um, he said, and, and and everything that comes out of this guy's mouth, uh, you know, sometimes when you look at fighters and, and you listen to what they say, you know, you say, well, you know, they were well coached. Uh, uh, someone told them how to say it, what to say, everything. And if that's the case with Anthony Joshua, more power to uh, his team for really keeping him uh, uh, grounded and so on and so forth. But I think a lot of it is, is AJ the man himself. I, I got a quote for you. Uh, he said, when you, get, when you watch a George Foreman and Ron Lyle kind of a fight or a Ali and Foreman fight where a bit of their soul and spirit disappears, I always wondered how they were doing it and how they were taking those shots. You always question how, why, and what makes people do what they do. Until I personally went through it, I would always watch boxing, but now I don't just watch it. I understand it. I know that the thing that you can't be taught is how to survive in the trenches. I just feel like my heart is very big and I wear it on my sleeve uh, in this sport. Um, I I have uh, another quote concerning uh, uh, Deontay Wilder, but Sal, um, the statement that I just read, the the statement from uh, Anthony Joshua, I think puts it in perspective. This is a guy that's, that's becoming a, a well-rounded world champion in every aspect, not only inside the ring but outside the ring. And then the way he's referring to these these classic fights is also showing me that he has an interest and a respect, which is important to me, for the fighters that came before him and what they gave to the sport, uh, uh, you know, put their bodies and and everything on the line for the for the love of the sport and for the future of the sport and for guys like him to benefit. What's your thoughts? <laughs> you hit it on the head. I mean, this guy is is a historian. He's well schooled, and like I said, Bill, until you go for ten rounds, until you have to pick yourself up, until you are are uh, looking at a standing eight count, until you are realizing that you can come back from a deficit and come back strong and come back and win and be the victor at the end of the fight. You know, you 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 don't know. That is uncharted water. And, you know, here he was, 18-0. and 0, and, and even in his mind, back in the, the mind back there, you know, he, he probably going into the Klitschko fight said, wow, this guy has been a world beater for 10 years or, or how many years. And I, I've got to go in there now and I've got to try to, 
to really prove and, and who I am and what I am and define who, what, what I'm all about. So those were questions. And I'm sure he was asking himself. But by the end of the fight, he had those questions answered. So that's why he's reflecting back. That's been his benchmark. And yes, he used the history of boxing and the greats that came before him. You use that, Bill. I would look at all those great fights myself and look at the great Roberto Duran, who I uh, tried to emulate and I loved. I thought he was great. And I'll debate anybody as far as being a lightweight champion. I still think Roberto Duran could probably be have been the best lightweight ever. Um, uh, definitely uh, one of the top three lightweights ever to step in a ring. Um, I think that... Uh, you know, whatever fuel, whatever fire, whatever source, this guy is the legit real deal. I mean, like I said, he respects boxing. He respects its history. He respects those who came before him that he's used to school, to emulate, to try and admire and to say, I'm going to make him my own. This is my pathway. And I see where they're coming from now. So everything he's saying right now, like you said, unless somebody is writing this for him, this is a script right out of his soul, and I, I think it's uh, it says a lot. And uh, no, I, I have more respect for him, more respect for him right now than I did even uh, ten minutes ago. Exactly. Um, <laughs> one last thing I wanted to say, um, you know, they were asked, uh, they they asked Deontay, uh, of course, the question that everybody asked him uh, about uh, having a, a a unification slash showdown with uh, uh, Deontay Wilder. Uh, who, uh, in, in my opinion, is a fraud. I, I mean, I, you know, no, no, no disrespect to Deontay himself, the man, but his record and and uh, you know everything that is built up around him. You know, even statements that he has been told to say. You know, nobody's destroying guys like me. Nobody wants to fight me. Everybody's scared of me. Um, you know, so so of course everybody wants to see the Wilder uh, versus uh, AJ fight. And when asked about it. Um, you know, asked if he wanted the fight, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Anthony Joshua said, it sounds good. I want to fight Deontay Wilder. What else am I going to do in 2018, provided that I don't have uh, any mandatories? I'll be a free agent. If dealt correctly with Ed Eddie Hearn, he's referring to Team, a uh, team uh, uh, Deontay Wilder, and the U.S., I think it could be built into something just like the Klitschko fight. It should be better. Having that fight in the USA could make sense. I could tell you a million things, but the reason I'm uh, saying that is because I do have some professional uh, people in the background that's advising me on what I should do. I can see this fight happening in the United States. If you came to Wembley on April 29th, you saw what that was like. It was phenomenal. That was really good. So do we want to create that again, or should we go overseas, referring to the U.S., and do something new? It's good to have these kinds of options. Um, you know, I, I, again, he's saying all the right things. Personally, yeah. personally, I, the, it, for him to come to the United States does not make sense. It, 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 he could make a hell of a lot more money by having the fight at, at Wembley Stadium with 90000 There is no question that a fight between AJ and Deontay Wilder would generate the, the interest in fight fans overseas. They would never, as big as the fight is, they would never get the gate here in the U.S. that they could get in England. And with that said, they still could make the fight a pay-per-view and still offer it on American television and still make all the money that they would make by staging the fight in the United States. To me, Sal, 
it's a no-brainer. There's no way that the fight should be in the U.S. The U.S. fans know who Anthony Joshua is. We don't need him to come here to introduce him, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the fight should take place in England. He's the man. Deontay has to go to him. That's my opinion. What do you think? Well, you know, I think the majority of fans do know Anthony Joshua. Uh, we haven't really seen him up close and personal. Uh, he really hasn't. Uh, we haven't seen him fight out of his backyard. And I know that was one of his incentives and motivations to come to the U.S. to fight. And again, if this is something that he is looking forward to and can get up for, I mean, it was like the first time I was supposed to fight at Madison Square Garden uh, against Kenny Bazemore for a 12-rounder uh, championship fight. I mean, I, I was so excited about that, and uh, I got up for that. I, I wanted to fight. The legacy, the whole the whole tradition of Madison Square Garden, wow. I mean, you got to get up for that. And his incentive he loves the united states he knows he has a fan following here and not to take his fan base of uh, uh in the uk for granted i i can understand how he can want to travel to the u.s uh and you know what maybe a fight in the u.s would help him even further gain the popularity and the notoriety with fight fans but even the secondary and tertiary fight fans that have an interest maybe it's going to be an impact maybe he thinks he's going to uh make a, a certain statement here in the united states he's going to come back and come back in someone else's backyard literally not brooklyn for deontay wilder or tennessee or whatever he wants to do but i think you know having a venue uh, for a world heavyweight title fight in Madison Square Garden or, as I say, in Bob Bennett's backyard in Vegas, is something that Deontay Wilder does want to see in his future. Not, not Deontay Wilder. Anthony Joshua does want to see in his future. Uh, it's just a natural pathway of where he feels that he can get up for a fight and do a great job. But uh, on the other side of the coin, Wembley has been his his his. His kingdom, his base, and uh, no pun intended with the kingdom. But hey, hold that, hold that thought, Sal. I got to take a break, my man. All right. I mean, they're very, they're very strict. They're very strict with me, Sal. So uh, I got to take a break. We'll be back in two. Billy C. will be right back. Check out BillyCBoxing.com now, or feel the wrath of the mighty mustache. Oh, that hurts. Why are you doing that to my face? I hate you. I hate you. That's BillyCBoxing.com. Consider this your warning. Now back to Billy C. Interact with the show at BillyCBoxing.com. And we're back. You're watching and listening to the Billy C. Show. Glad you could be with us today. And uh, in case you're just tuning in, we are talking about... Uh, Anthony Joshua, some uh, comments he's uh, made, and uh, a, a great uh, diary that we're getting forwarded to us from uh, uh, a uh, Billy C. Boxing contributor in, in uh, Johnston. Uh, he uh, has been uh, kind enough to send us the diary that Anthony Joshua has been public uh, publicizing, well, I should say printing in the uh, England newspapers uh, leading up to his fight this weekend. Um, I got some other news. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people are always talking about Deontay Wilder uh, fighting uh, Dillian White, Sal. And uh, Dillian White is ranked uh, at number three in the WBC, uh, which is the belt that um, Deontay Wilder holds. 
And, you know, it's a very good uh, uh, possibility that uh, Wilder will, will fight White. I mean, I mean it's, it's, a, it's actually a fight that is winnable for Deontay Wilder. I, you know, I think Dillian White is, is a bit uh, overrated. I mean, I think Dillian White's a good fighter, and I like the fight between him and Deontay Wilder, and, and I do think it's a fight that Deontay Wilder needs to fight because he really hasn't fought anyone yet. Uh, of note, but uh, but uh, Dillian White has thrown some gas on the fire. Uh, he, basically, let me read a quote. He, Dillian White says, Deontay Wilder is a disgrace. I want to get in a position to fight for his belt because he's not going to do it voluntarily. They, they will say AJ is number one. He has multiple belts, and he's the one who's fighting the names. Wilder is a chump. He's not fought a mandatory in over two years, and Joseph Parker is defending his title on YouTube, so you show, so that shows what his level is. That says it all. AJ's the man at the minute. I want a rematch with, with Joshua. I'd like to fight Parker or Wilder first. They are the two weakest world champions. I'd beat either one of those, which would then set up a massive rematch with Joshua in England at Wembley or in Cardiff or even another country, shit, I'd even fight him in Nigeria. So uh, throwing some fuel on the fire there, Sal, um, you know, when I break down Dillian White's uh, record, he's, he's, he really hasn't fought anybody. I mean, when you, when you take a look at him, uh, you know, his, his big wins, I mean, he had a win over a 9-0 and David Allen, uh, Brian Minto is is a, a a journeyman if you want to give him credit for that. And Derek Chisora was a fight that many people thought Derek Chisora won. Aside from that, his only loss came at the hands of Anthony Joshua. He's twenty one and one. He hasn't fought anybody else. I mean, I think it's a good matched fight between him and Deontay Wilder. But the question is, will Deontay have the you know what's to step in there and fight the guy? You know, that's a big question. I mean, like we said, uh, Deontay Wilder could believe that he is the biggest and the baddest on the planet. And, uh, you know, but I believe the, the people around him are the ones that are kind of choreographing and and making the decisions on who, what, when, and where he's going to fight. Um, I, I could see that fight being a very good fight. And, uh, you know, I thought you might have written that for, uh, uh, um, for this guy, but, uh, I had Dillian White, but, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I would like to see this fight. And I think that, uh, he would have to, uh, you know, definitely show everything that he's talking about by beating Deontay Wilder. And I know, I, Bill, and I know we have a difference of opinion. I don't think we've seen the best Deontay Wilder yet. And, uh, are we going to get in that position to see it when he fights someone that we know and respect? Yeah, then we might be able to see who the true, real Deontay Wilder is. Well, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think we're ever going to see the real uh, Deontay Wilder because he's never going to fight a real fight. I, you know, and, and when he does, he's going to lose. But uh, uh, that's my thoughts anyway. But... Uh, I mean, I, I just don't think that he has a chance against AJ. You do? On a freakish level, I you know, I, I kind of, uh, I think he's got a chance. And like I said, I'd be, I'd be a hypocrite if I, if I said anything different because I'm the one that says, hey, any given night, 
anything can happen in that ring. And uh, we don't know what each man possesses or comes into that squared circle for that evening, what's going to happen with their psyche, their their body, their mind, and where it is and how it's set. Uh, so any given night, anything could happen in that ring. And uh, Deontay Wilder is no chump. I mean, the guy has, as we would sometimes define as freakish punching power, and uh, he does have some of the tools that it takes to be where he is. Uh, I don't think he has all the tools, but then again, like I said, I don't think we've seen the best Deontay Wilder uh, thus far. Uh, and hopefully, if he does get a fight with AJ, it'll be a competitive fight. We will see uh, if Deontay Wilder does dig down and shows everybody what he thinks he's all about. And if he can, then that's great. If not, then guess what? You're right all along. He was just uh, f- fabricated and he was uh, protected. And, and uh, you know, the end goes of that career, you know, that kind of thing. He'll be just uh, hovering uh, on the top for a while until uh, somebody else puts him back down again. So it, it's got to be a showdown. It's got to be a fight made, and I hope we see it in 2018. But until then, ciao, baby. No, I'm teasing. Hey, use your own, use your own line. Buddy. Use my own. I, I but, plagiarized that one. But, How you but, like that? But huh? anyway, talk, talk about a fight. Um, the World Series is going to be a fight. Last night we had uh, the first game of the World Series, and uh, what a game it was. Uh, a pitcher's duel for sure. Uh, arguably the two top pitchers uh, in uh, uh, baseball went head-to-head. And at the end, Clayton Kershaw got the W. The Dodgers beat the Dodgers. The, uh, the Dodgers beat the Astros 3-1 to one to take a one-game-to-nothing World Series lead over the Astros. Uh, da- Dallas Kuchel, and I know I pronounce his name wrong. I don't know why I can't say this guy's name. It's uh, it, whatever. He got the loss uh, tonight. Uh, the Astros put their other ace on the mound. Justin Verlander uh, is going up against uh, Rich Hill from the Dodgers. So uh, uh, let's see if the Dodgers can get two in a row or if the Astros even it up before they go back to Houston. In the uh, National Hockey League, the Islanders, who starting off pretty good this year, beat the Coyotes 5-3. to three. The Ducks beat the Flyers 6-2. to two. The Penguins uh, over the Oilers 2-1 to one in overtime. The Lightnings over the Hurricanes 5-1. to one. The Sabres topped the Red Wings 1-0. Can- the Canadians over the Panthers 5-1. to one. The Kings beat the Senators in a shootout 3-2. to two. Also in a shootout, the Flames beat the Predators 3-2. to two. The Avalanche topped the Stars 5-3. to three. The Canucks shut out the Wild 1-0. And the Las Vegas Golden Knights go to seven wins and one losses, uh, one loss when they beat the Blackhawks 4-2. In NBA action, the Cavaliers topped the Bulls 119-112. The Magic beat my Nets 125-121. The Celtics beat the Knickerbockers 110-89. The Pacers over the Timberwolves 130-107. The Trailblazers 103. Pelicans 93. Uh, Clippers beat the Jazz 102 to 84. That gets you caught up with uh, some other sports, and I'm looking forward to uh, that uh, second game of the World Series tonight. And uh, I'm certainly looking forward to some good fights uh, on the week uh, on the tube uh, over the weekend. Man, I'm I'm stuck. Yeah, I don't okay. know. It's what, okay. What? Take your time. Think of what you you got me nervous, Sally. I'm all nervous. I, it's, all, it's all these people. No, I'm watching. I'm watching it, some of the chat going on in the chat room, and uh, uh, we got uh, uh, my man Oddfella who's uh, saying that uh, uh, Anthony uh, Joshua will lose to Deontay Wilder. So, uh, hey, listen, I'm glad 
that some people think that because you know what when everybody knows that a fighter is going to beat another fighter it's not going to be a competitive fight i don't personally think that deontay wilder has a chance against aj i think deontay wilder is a fraud uh but i want to see the fight and i'm glad that people do think he's got a chance because uh, that makes it uh, more the more the interesting as far as i'm concerned so yeah no it's true and and like i said I, I don't think it's a slam dunk for AJ. I think, you know, Deontay Wilder is going to have uh, some things that he's going to uh, be able to rise to the occasion. I think uh, he'll do – I'm not saying he's going to beat AJ, but I think, you know, we've, we've yet to see the best Deontay Wilder. Now, whether it's all going to be fabricated and a farce and, and, and he doesn't have what I think he does have, eh, time's going to tell when he's in with the world, top of the, top of the world, you know. So we'll see. We'll see. I think he's got a little bit more than what he's showing us. Well, I hope so. Hey, Sal, I know you got some things to do, and uh, do. we'll look forward to you tomorrow, my man. All right, guys, I want to thank you so much, Billy, for the opportunity and the time we spent this morning over my coffee mug. And uh, I want you to have a great day, you and everybody out there. Thank you so much, and take care. All right, brother. Take care. See you That's tomorrow. Sal, Rocky, Senecola. I'm uh, having to do some stuff, so uh, he's going to take care of that. Me? I'm going to take care of some uh, business because I'm going to take a break. And when I come back, I'm scheduled to have my man Larry Hazard join us. And don't go anywhere because after Larry, uh, we got Alex Papali coming on with this week's Blast from the Past, which is a kid, really. Unfortunately, we lost him too young. Edwin Valario uh, is the guy we're going to be talking about. So a lot of stuff coming up. Don't go nowhere because we'll be right back. Billy C will be right back. Hey, fight fans. Check out KOFantasyBoxing.com. KO Fantasy Boxing is boxing's only trademarked fantasy game. Check it out, www.kofantasyboxing.com. Select your own gym, your own fighters. Track them through a season that can last from three months to a year, depending upon which league you join. You got to check this out, man. www.kofantasyboxing.com. Join it today. Again, www.kofantasyboxing.com. And tell them Billy C sent you. Broadcasting in all corners of the globe on the web and radio. He would scoff at a stretch of that man, I would think. You're listening to Talkin' Boxing with Billy C. From upstate New York in the good old U.S. of A. Boxing is here to stay because we are here to stay. The best two hours of boxing talk on the airwaves. The one, the only, Don King. Makes me feel good, Billy, to have you, the number one show in the country, talking boxing with Billy. So I invite each and every American that's listening to this great show to tune in. This, we want you to be there with Billy and me. Check out BillyCBoxing.com now or feel the wrath of the mighty mustache. Oh, that hurts. Why are you doing that to my face? I hate you. I hate you. That's BillyCBoxing.com. Consider this your warning. Now back to Billy C. Interact with the show at BillyCBoxing.com. And we're back. You're watching and listening to the Billy C. Show. Glad you could be with us today. And uh, joining me right now uh, is my man, uh, Larry Hazard. Good morning, Larry. 
Hey, good morning, Billy. How you doing? Not too bad. Uh, before I get your thoughts on some uh, of the fights from last weekend, I, I got an email uh, for you. This is from uh, my man Mitch. He's got a, a, a couple of uh, questions for you. Um, he said uh, he listened. This is to you. He says, Larry, I listened to your Atlantic City uh, Boxing Hall of Fame speech. You said that you toiled in the uh, vineyards of amateur boxing for over 11 years before being brought to Atlantic City. My questions are this. Number one, where were you uh, before you were brought to Atlantic City? So I'll let you answer each one before I give you the second uh, and third. So the first one is where were you before you were brought to Atlantic City? Well, I was um, basically doing amateur boxing around the metropolitan area of New, Jer- New Jersey, and I did some in that mid-Atlantic region of uh, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, from 1967 until 1978. Okay, and in 1978, that's when professional boxing came to the casinos in Atlantic City. And at that time, I was recruited out of the amateur ranks by the deputy commissioner who worked under uh, Jersey Joe Walcott, who actually was the commissioner uh, of professional boxing in New Jersey, a fellow by the name of Robert W. Lee, Bob Lee. He recruited me out of the amateurs and brought me to Atlantic City to do professional boxing in 1978. So up until that time, I was doing amateur boxing around the metropolitan area, you know, Newark, I mean, Newark, uh, Jersey City, New Jersey, uh, metropolitan area. And I turned professional in 1978. Um, The second question, he says, if you didn't become the commissioner in Atlantic City, and obviously uh, it's not just for Atlantic City, it's for the whole state, uh, or decided to leave boxing, what do you think you would have done instead? Well, I would have stayed in education. You know, I was a school teacher. I was a physical education and health teacher. Then I was a um, vice principal. And ultimately, I was a school principal. I was a high school principal when Tom Kane, the former governor of New Jersey, in 1985, made me the uh, athletic commissioner. Now, during all of those years when I was teaching, I was also refereeing professionally. You know, in 1978, I was, um, I was still in the uh, education profession. So I would have stayed in education and uh, perhaps, uh, you know, ascended the ladder, um, you know, to um, higher positions in education. Maybe at some point, I think I would have been motivated to become a college professor, or even at that time, I had my sights on becoming uh, a, 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 an attorney, a lawyer. So it's no question, you know, no, you know, I don't know where I would have done, but I definitely would have still stayed in education had I not uh, been uh, recruited and made the boxing commissioner. I'm glad. I'm glad you decided to get into boxing, man, and and get out of uh, the teaching possession, profession. That's for sure. Not that you know. And the and the, the the ironic twist is that you're a great teacher for boxing. So uh, you know, it's it's good. It's good. So the last question he's got is: Is it normal to float around in the amateurs for such a long time, whether it be as a judge or a referee? 
to me, this is Mitch, uh, being in the amateurs for 11 years seems like a lifetime. You know, before you answer that question, you know, I, to me, I don't understand the question because in a sense, maybe that's half the problem we have today in the sport, Larry, because people don't do their time, so to speak. You know, don't you learn, you know, if you're a, if you make it to the pros in football or basketball or baseball, you've spent a good amount of time in the amateur ranks, whether it be college, football, or baseball, or even going back further than that to, to the high school level. I mean, you need the experience. You can't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to be a pro. Is it, is it the same? Well, you're reading my mind, Billy, because, and you answered my question of varsity. Um, 11 years, I think, was, was a long time, but... There was no doubt in my mind when I stepped up to the professional ranks, I was ready. Um, when I became the commissioner, realizing that it was so important that you learn all of the basic skills of refereeing and judging, I instituted a rule in New Jersey that you had to serve at least a minimum of five years in the amateur ranks before you could apply to become a professional. That's in the state of New Jersey. And all of the officials that officiate professionally in New Jersey come from the New Jersey amateur ranks. There are no walk-ons uh, in officiating in New Jersey. They have to attend seminars and they must serve an apprenticeship of at least five years and come with a recommendation from the president of USA Boxing that oversees uh, amateur boxing in New Jersey. So I do not think that 11 years is too long. Uh, I think that 11 years, someone should be really equipped to do the job at the professional level. So... You know, that's basically the way I feel about that one. Well, I appreciate you answering uh, the email. Now I want to ask you some stuff on the fights from uh, this past weekend. First and foremost, what a great show in Jersey, huh? I mean, uh, that Gaziev uh, took care of Vlad Zarek. Uh, oh. Vlad Zarek was a guy that pretty much controlled the cruiserweight division for years. And uh, I, I can't say enough about the World Boxing Super Series and uh, what uh, Schaefer's done with this. You know, I really hope, as much as I'm loving the cruiserweights uh, and the fact that this, this tournament, Larry, is, is putting them in the forefront, from being a guy that was right in the trenches uh, in Jersey, uh, you know, doing the weigh-ins, being there for the fight, could you get a sense that the fans were being receptive to the cruiserweights and the good fights? Do you see that, that the impact from the World Boxing Super Series, at least from the the uh, tournament that, uh, you know, the tournament result that you saw in Jersey, is it working or is it going to be short-lived? Well, the heavyweights better look out because the fans were ecstatic. That was, I, I give that, I give that promotion an A+. Plus. I was so happy and so proud that we didn't have any glitches. The fights were fantastic and those cruiserweights really perform, and you're talking about classic punch. Gassiev hit him with a classic liver shot 
He went down and didn't get up. And I said, man, what a way to end the night. But I think that that World Boxing Super Series is just what the doctor ordered for boxing. And I hope, and in talking to Richard Schaefer, he wants to really cultivate um, that series, that weight. He really is looking forward to coming back to New Jersey, hopefully to do a Cruiserweight Championship fight uh, at the Prudential Arena. And I think that it was a great success. And I would hope that they would do it in other weight classes because I think that's really what boxing needs. We're the best, fights the best in a tournament. See, fans are used to tournaments. And it's a good thing. You know, you have, you have tournaments in almost every other sport. You know, you got the NBA Finals, you got the football, NFL, all these days. You know, and the fans know. They're, they're used. They're tournament-oriented. Boxing is the only major sport where fans are really not used to tournaments. So I think that this is a new concept. And from what I saw Saturday night, it is definitely one that can catch on and will catch on, okay, if he continues in this fashion. With the fights those cruiserweights put on, I think it's going to be a fantastic uh, tournament. And I think that it's a great idea for the whole sport of boxing, and I hope to see it in other weight classes. Yeah, I, I, I listen. I'm, I love the cruiserweight division, and I'm glad that the fights are are they've been so exciting. And and the best part about this, Larry, and you're right. You know, the fans love the tournament, the build up. That you don't know who you're going to fight next. I mean, that that's like. That's almost like recreating the old rivalries that we don't have anymore, you know, and you have a, 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 you know, a town against a town or a city against a city or whatever that everybody's afraid to do today because they don't want to they don't want to upset anybody. I mean, could you imagine like they had in the 50s and 60s where, you know, it'd be the Irish against the Italian night or, or the Jewish against the Italian night. You know, no, they wouldn't do that now because somebody might get offended. Oh, whoa, 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 what are you doing? You know, so they're afraid. So the promoters got their hands tied, you know, and, uh, um, you know, here we got a, a tournament which kind of fills that void a little bit. But the best part of this tournament is the fact that these guys – and, and you and I have talked about this before, which is pretty pathetic for the U.S. fighters. But these guys, most of them have titles. So, so they're actually showing the world in not so many words that, hey, what's more important to show I'm the best or bring my trinket with me? And they're showing the world that they want to prove that they're the best by fighting the other guys that have belts. And I, and I applaud them for doing it. Oh, that's great. It's really great. And just to touch on what you just said about the, what I call the ethnic rivalry. You know, boxing has hung its hat for years on the ethnic rivalry, which were back in the 50s and 60s. It was clean boxing. I mean, there was nothing, uh, you know, we weren't so politically correct. There was nothing mean-spirited about it. It was just, it just gave different groups of people, ethnic pride through boxing. And these guys shook hands. They became the best of, of friends and respect for one another for years and years. There was nothing nasty or mean-spirited about it. But what has happened over time in society, 
we have become so politically correct that we take away from the goodness of, of in this case, the sport of boxing. You know, then there was the ge geographic rival. You know, the kid from the east side versus the kid from, from Harlem. Or the kid from, uh, you know, the west side versus, uh, you know, a kid from, from the east side. Or, or uh, Chicago versus uh, California, New York. You know, this is what the sport has been built on. And we need to go back and get some more of that flavor again. And so I'd love to see it. You know, and I think that um, this tournament kind of leans that way with these guys. They have their belt. You know, I'm the IBF champion or I'm the WBC champion. I'm going to prove that I'm the best, you know. So they, it's a great thing, man, and I hope that it just continues to snowball and get bigger and bigger because it's what the sport needs. I, I agree. You know, we, we, we started that years ago with the Super 6, and they all ran away from it. And and I think the reason was that the fighters weren't willing to do it because they saw they, they didn't realize the risk at first until they got the L. Then they were like, oh, geez, you know, wait a minute. you know. And, and again, that gets blamed on the promoters and the networks for, for having the lack of knowledge about what makes a fighter a good fighter and you shouldn't be just looking at the record that's why this kid uh i well everybody's a kid to me now but eddie hearn uh coming over to the u.s he's gonna take a you watch this guy is is making this yes. world smaller because he's gonna come yes. over and the way he uh his practice and and thinking things all the way through you know i i'm sure his his main concern is to make money just like every other promoter but this guy's thinking it through and he realizes that it's not smart to trip over dollars to save pennies and he's he's thinking things through and uh he's gonna leave the the u.s promoters in the dirt you in the dust you watch man but uh anyway uh a fight that uh uh i, I i'm I still don't understand what I witnessed. I was ringside for the uh, Turning Stone fights, and Demetrius Andre uh, fought Alantes Fox um, in a middleweight fight. And and I had learned after the fight, or actually during that night, that um, uh, Demetrius had vacated his 154-pound title. He fought this fight at 160, and he beats a guy in a boring fashion and I said to myself, why did he do this? Because I don't see him beating any of the top, what I call top middleweights, like Triple G, Canelo, David Lemieux, Billy Joe Saunders. I mean, those top guys, it seems like a, a silly move for him. Uh, but then again, he's got some monster guys in the junior middleweight division. What was your thoughts on the move and the fight itself? Well, I thought the fight was really very boring. And I think that... I, I'm glad you said that because I was wondering what what the heck was uh, Kellerman and Lampley talking about? You know, you should. I don't know if you heard these guys. They they were making Andre. This is Andrade, or they Andre. Okay, they were making it seem like he was a real challenge for some of the guys in the middle of the division. And I'm like, you know, are they for real? I said, this guy he relinquishes his belt and moves up. The middleweight, he's going nowhere against any of those guys. And to tell you the truth, Fox, I don't know who's training him. Here's a guy, is he really six feet? Was he really as tall as they were saying? Six feet five? Because 
since when does a six foot, six feet five fighter make himself conveniently small by fighting the way that he did, bending it down instead of, you know, using his range? I, with the right training, with the right instruction, he could have won that fight easily with his height, you know, with his length and everything else. But he fought, you know, he was like, here I am, and like these guys agreed that this is the way we're going to fight, this entire fight, very boring, and that Andrade was going to win the fight. But he's going nowhere in the middleweight division. I can tell you that right now. No, he can't. And and you know what? You see, what, what what's starting to happen in boxing, thank God, we're getting fighters that are fighting in exciting fashion. And, and I think the fans are finally realizing that the definition of the sweet science doesn't necessarily mean that you have to run across the ring and avoid the punch, that, you know, you can be exciting and still display sweet science by avoiding a punch while you're engaging. And, and a lot of the, the young fighters, now that we're getting a chance to see them, are doing just that. Demetrius Andre isn't. He's a guy that sits in a pocket. He has extreme skill set. I mean, this is a guy that's got hand speed. He's got good head movement. You know, he's accurate with his punches, but he doesn't throw enough of them, Larry. He throws one, two. That's it. And he will never be exciting. And, I, you know, for the longest time, I was blaming his promotional uh, team, which is, consists of Star and, and Banner Promotions. He's co-promoted. But the truth of the matter is, is he's not doing anything for himself either. You know, he's, he's not. I mean, he should have taken this kid out. He had him hurt and he fought the safety first. I, I think I saw him throw one three punch combination. The rest of it was all one twos, one twos all night long. And uh, I, I can't see. And I'm, I'm with you. He, he's not going to go very far in the middleweight division. That's for sure. I see them setting him up. I think he cut a deal. He's going to fight that Murata. Uh, kid uh, out of Japan who just won the title from the Dom, and then he's going to say he's the main guy in the middleweight division. So I I, I don't know. But um, the other fight I wanted to ask you about was the main event, and, and, and this, again, goes back to something you and I have talked a lot about. We need to go back to same-day weigh-ins, uh, Larry, because what that'll do for the sport of boxing is it'll give us a true representation of the weight classes, and I think it'll be safer for the fighters long term. Um, when you look at the uh, featherweight, uh, Alberto, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Jezreel Corrales, who lost his belt on the scale. He was three and a half. He, he, after he lost another half a pound, he was still three and a half pounds over, and um, he goes into the fight, and, and to me that's an indication of a guy that just can't lose the weight. I mean, he's trying to gain the the advantage of, of drying himself out and so on and so forth. And the truth of the matter is, is he's fighting in the wrong weight class. And at the end of the night, he ends up getting knocked out uh, by a guy, really, he shouldn't have uh, if you put him, you know, where they were in terms of, uh, um, you know, that weight class, how good he was. Albert Machado comes in and, and uh, knocks this guy out. What's your thoughts on the fight and the fact that maybe we should go back to same-day weigh-ins? Well, you know, I had a discussion. I had a discussion. It's funny. It's ironic. I had a discussion with the supervisor uh, for the IBF um, at the at the uh, Super Series. And as you know, uh, those guys, they had to weigh in on Friday. And then the IBF has this stupid rule that the next morning 
they have to weigh in again, and the fighter cannot put on more than 10 pounds. So he wanted to know my opinion on, on the next day. Wait, and I said, I think, it's, I think it's ridiculous. Once you have the official weigh-in, then that's it. Now, if you're going to weigh the fighter the next day, then why not let's go back to same day weigh-in? Because that's what it appears you're saying anyway, okay? I, I am totally in favor of the same day weigh-in, the way that was in boxing for over 100 years. There's nothing wrong with the weigh-in. But you know what happened in the Dooku Kim fight. And then some bright doctor came up with the theory of fighters not um, having enough time to rehydrate and all this other nonsense. Okay, they were rehydrating, okay, for over 100 years. So somebody wanted to make it look as though they were um, solving a problem. So we're going to say, okay, we're going to have the way in the day before. But I agree 100% that we should go back the same day weigh in and leave it the way it was and if a fighter you know can't make the weight then he should move to the next weight class all this drying out and all this other stuff that's unhealthy is crazy and i think that we we actually encourage it with the way that we're doing things administratively so i i'm, I'm with you on the I lost the last part, Larry. Are you still there, Larry? Yeah, I'm still here. Oh yeah, I lost that. I, yeah, I lost you for a second. What was the last part that you said? No, I said that I'm on that same day weigh-in. Right. No, I I think the same day weigh-in. I think we need you know, it's it's time. It's time to to get back to the to the same day weigh-ins. There's there's no question about that. Yeah. I, you know, if a fighter can't make the weight, then he should move to the next weight class. Well, that I, I mean, it, be, with so many guys losing their their uh, titles on the scale, I, I think that's enough right. proof right there that's showing that they just can't do it. Their bodies can't do it. You know, <laughs> you know, and and I, I I just think that. Listen, two weeks ago when I saw that Jared Hurd in the ring, I'm looking at this guy going, he looks like a cruiserweight. I mean, I, you know. Um, yeah. I just, we, we, we gotta have real weight class. And then as far as the Dooku Kim, you know, they, they said the 15 rounds, the, the way that, listen, the reason why they changed the way and let's make no mistake, they may made it sound like it's a safety issue, but it was to ensure the television networks that if a guy decided not to fight his opponent, uh, because he didn't make weight that they would have 24 hours to do something else. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I think that that was the true reason. I agree. That, that, that's all it was. Right. That's all it was. Right. And, yeah. and you know what's happening, what's starting to happen now, is that the fighters are telling them, hey, look, I can't make the weight, so I ain't, you know, some of the fighters are even refusing to get on the scale. You know what I mean? No, I know. So, I know. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's comical, really, you know. Larry, you going in and out, my man? Listen, we will uh, we will catch up with you next week. All right, after the uh, after the Anthony Joshua fight this weekend, I, I hope we got a lot of good things to talk about. Okay, okay, Billy. All right, my man. Sorry, sorry, on the road this morning. No, That's I, why I had to have you call. Me. Yeah, no, I figured. I figured, man. I, I thought maybe you were going through one of them tunnels, you know. 
No, I'm on the highway. <laughs> okay, Billy. All right, brother. See you next week. All right, man. Take care. That's Larry Hazard uh, giving us his thoughts on uh, same-day weigh-ins. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I think that the same-day weigh-in has uh, come and should go now. Uh, it uh, clearly uh, uh, does not uh, make any sense to me. And I think that uh, it's ruining the sport in a sense because we're not getting a true representation uh, of the uh, weight classes. Uh, so uh, um, I, I, I don't know. I agree with Larry. And I also agree with him about the uh, World Boxing Super Series uh, and the Cruiserweight division. I'm excited uh, and hope that the uh, fans will continue to follow the Cruiserweight division uh, after the tournament is over. Hey, listen, I'm going to take a short break. When we come back, we're scheduled to have Alex Papali join us uh, with his brand new mic. Uh, he's all excited about it. So uh, we're looking forward to that. And we're going to be doing the blast from the past on uh, a former world champion and a guy that's left us uh, too soon, Edwin Valero. And that was uh, as per request. So uh, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Billy C will be right back. Part of the Billy C Boxing Network. Check out BillyCBoxing.com now or feel the wrath of the mighty mustache. Oh, that hurts. Why are you doing that to my face? I hate you. I hate you. That's BillyCBoxing.com. Consider this your warning. Now back to Billy C. Interact with the show at BillyCBoxing.com. And we're back. You're listening and watching the Billy C Show. Glad you could be with us today. And uh, it's that time again. Uh, uh, one of our longest running segments on the show uh, is the Blast from the Past. And today's Blast from the Past is being brought to us uh, in part by KOFantasyBoxing.com. Check out the website, www.kofantasyboxing.com, and sign up today. And it's also being brought to us in part by the Title Bout Championship Computer Game. Download your copy today. You can uh, get to the link pretty quickly by visiting our website, billycboxing.com, and clicking on the banner. You can't miss it. It's, uh, it's on the page. Maybe you can miss it. Look for it. It's there. Uh, today's Blast from the Past, a request from one of you guys, uh, our viewers and listeners, uh, features a guy that... Left us too early, uh, in my opinion. He was a former world champion. Uh, he was uh, on his way to stardom. Had a couple of bumps in the road and uh, ended up leaving us too soon. So joining me right now to tell us all about former world champion Edwin Valero uh, is my man uh, Alex Papali. And, and guess what? He doesn't know that we had the camera on him the whole time uh, while he was getting ready. So, uh, man... <laughs> Uh, you shocked me there, brother. I, you know, don't don't worry. I didn't. But uh, I was all getting dressed. Yeah, yeah. I know. I happen to have saw seen that. You know. But thank God I don't automatically just switch the camera so everyone else could see it. It would have been like, what's going on? What kind of show is this? You know. Why are we watching? Yeah. The dark man why are in we? Bedroom? Why are we getting that 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 view? You know. But uh, anyway. Uh, you know, I do the same morning, thing with Billy Sal. <laughs> I, I do the same thing with Sal. You know, he's sitting there drinking coffee, running around. You know, him and when somebody else on the line at the same time, they're all talking and having fun. You know, it's like, hey, one of these days I'm gonna, it's gonna be candid camera. You know, but uh, <laughs> that's right. Any, anyway, tell us about Edwin Valero. You know, I was, you know, before we get started with this, 
you know, I, w- I had mixed feelings about this as a blast. Um, you know, we like to try to uh, focus on, on fighters of, of years gone by, but it, it has kind of been a, a while. And, you know, after I thought about it for not too long, I, I was kind of glad that uh, that we were doing this on him because, you know, it makes me wonder, Alex, if, if Edwin Valero is going to be one of those guys that is forgotten because he didn't really have a chance. I mean, he, he was shifting into second gear. He didn't even get up to third or fourth with his career. And uh, I just hope people uh, remember him. He, 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 he was well on, on his way of being a special fighter. Oh, he absolutely was. I mean, and I think that what we saw of him um, will remain uh, memorable uh, as a certain, you know, like you said, a special kind of fighter. However, I I think uh, the thing that's difficult to to talk about this kind of a person, and I guess the only other uh, comparison would be Carlos Monzon. Whenever you talk about somebody like this, uh, we have to distinguish between the boxing, the boxer, and the human being. And as a human being, um, Edwin Valero uh, is not a very honorable one, and not really one who deserves to, you know, be remembered fondly. Uh, but I think that's the thing about our sport. Is I would hope that. Uh, people have uh, you know can have a nuanced view about it you know recently uh, Jerry Seinfeld uh, the comedian was on a um, the Colbert show with Stephen Colbert and they got to talking about what their influences were and Seinfeld's major influence was Bill Cosby and they got into a little bit of a discussion about how now it's difficult to listen to Cosby knowing what we know um, about you know the man but for so for a while, Seinfeld disagreed very strongly with Colbert because Colbert said he can't distinguish, you know, and he doesn't listen. And Seinfeld disagreed and said, you know, what does one have to do with the other? You know, granted, you know, uh, it's not like you're trying to uh, give a pass to the person. I mean, somebody, some a perfect example of this time of year for me, one of my favorite all time movies is Rosemary's Baby. Uh, is Roman Polanski a pretty despicable person? Yeah, he sure is. But it doesn't make the movie any less. So I think that's one of the things that we got to keep in mind with Edwin uh, Valero is as a boxer, he was pretty incredible. Um, but uh, yeah, just a nasty, mean person. And I think one of the things about our sport is that um, it's not as prevalent as people think because they, I think the stereotype is that everybody in boxing is just, you got to be a mean, nasty person to want to hurt people. Uh, we know um, that's not true. Somebody like you just been talking about this morning is Anthony Joshua is probably the polar opposite about of somebody like an Edwin Valero, uh, who maybe, you know, in his youth, uh, he had some, you know, acting out. But um, now uh, boxing, you know, is someplace where he can excel as a man. And, uh, you know, the things he's talking about are just these the pinnacle of sportsmanship. The way he acted after beating Vladimir Klitschko uh, showed that he was aware of himself in a, in a sense of history. A guy like Edwin Valero, you didn't get that. But what you did get was just raw, vicious boxing. And um, for that, yeah, he is worth remembering. 
He, uh, you know, you made an, a comparison to Carlos Monzon, uh, and obviously that was the, um, yeah, I'm assuming anyway, that it was uh, the connection with the, the women beating. But uh, Oh, yeah, and murdering his wife. Yeah, <laughs> well, <clears throat> that too, uh, allegedly. But, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the thing that bothers me about Edwin Valero is, I, I mean, you know, you, you could take a look at his, his resume and, you know, uh, because he fought in a, a lower uh, weight class, maybe some of the names don't jump out at you. Uh, but he did fight every single guy that was, uh, you know, that he could have. Uh, 27-0, and 27 wins by knockout. But the thing that I can't get past um, at all with this, Alex, is when you go back to um, 2003, when you know golden boy signed him and they wanted to bring him over to the united states and he had to succumb to some of the uh you know uh, medical requirements here in the states it was discovered and of course a golden boy takes the the hardest state to get approved in, of course uh, my state of new york uh in 2004 to put him on a uh on a on a fight card and new york requires the head scans for uh, for all the fighters and an MRI reveals that he had a blood clot on his uh, brain, uh, a, a result from a motorcycle accident that he had uh, years before. Then New York put him on what was defined as an indefinite suspension. Yet he fought in Texas. And my question is, is I couldn't find any documentation on when and how the indefinite, which as far as I know, means forever suspension was lifted in New York from New York because the way the way that works is if a state puts an indefinite suspension or any suspension for that matter on a fighter, it's that state that has to lift it. Do you know how that happened? Because he ended up being able to fight in Texas um, and he did fight in the U.S. after that. And uh, I was just curious uh, about that. Did you find because I couldn't find anything and and i don't and and you know the united states it they they follow the fight facts suspension so if you try to bring a fighter to another state and he's suspended the protocol is you got to go back to that state where he's suspended and have them release the the uh, suspension for fight facts can you enlighten me on that um it was yeah it was 2004 when new york discovered it and you're right the uh, association of boxing commissions went along with it now i i don't have um something specific that says why texas went ahead with uh letting him fight um but yeah, haven't they done that before i mean it's texas uh haven't they allowed fighters that were um uh, suspended before to fight. Uh, I thought that Texas had like different rules or something that um, I I'm not sure. Maybe I should just stop talking because I'm not sure of it. But I, I think that there's been a there's been another there's been a couple of other instances where fighters suspended other places got around it by fighting in Texas. But you're right. Uh, most commissions, um, at least stateside, forbid him for fighting. Um, yeah, let me just back up a little bit. Um, he was born, uh, one of the a quote that I think is something to think about uh, with this guy is uh, from a December 2008 
article uh, that was translated from Sports Illustrated Latino, and he said, uh, "This is for, this is Valero. I fear no one. I like to hit men. It liberates me." He was born December 3rd, 1981 in Bolero Alto in the uh, Andes Mountains in a, in a town of uh, um, the, or the region of Merida. And he lived, you know, was incredibly poor, lived in a two-room house with his mom and father and four siblings. Uh, his parents separated when he was seven. Uh, by nine, he was splitting his time between going to school and working. Uh, he worked at the local bus station uh, you know, he picked fruit and then sold it there. Uh, his mom was a dishwasher, but all the kids had to work and help out. So, you know, this was, he came out of absolute poverty. At 13, he started uh, Taekwondo classes, which he claimed was the first sport, uh, first sport he ever learned besides marbles. But uh, it cost too much to maintain it, so to keep go, keep up the gym dues, so uh, they had to stop. Uh, he started working in a bicycle shop at 13 years old. He was told about a gym. Uh, he went in. It was a boxing gym. That night, he moved into the gym and started sleeping in the gym. Uh, quite a few uh, amateur boxers slept there. Boxing turned his life around. But as we know now from Mike Tyson, when people say boxing turned his life around, it doesn't necessarily mean that stopped his criminality. Uh, I think um, you could kind of think about it in, in terms of like addiction. Uh, you don't go cold turkey uh, from being a criminal, it seems. And uh, he had he ran with a really brutal crowd. Uh, he had 30 friends that were all either killed by police or other gang members. Uh, at 16, while he was an, a standout amateur, uh, at 15, he started winning national titles. But at 16, he was robbing college students at gunpoint, taking their bicycles and then stashing the bikes in the gym. Uh, he was starting to get preferential treatment by police when he would be arrested in Venezuela uh, because of his standout um, boxing success. Um, but yeah, eventually he did come to the United States. Well, first thing I think that we should mention is he knocked people out like you wouldn't believe. I mean, he scored an incredible amount of knockouts as an amateur, uh, the percentage of knockouts, which, you know, is a little bit rarer to get uh, knockouts in the amateurs because of the bigger gloves and the headgear. Uh, not only that, he would hurt guys in sparring. There's video of him sparring with uh, Urbano uh, Antione when he was one of the top, um, you know, super lightweights. And Valero... You know, it, it Antonio doesn't go down, but he all but goes down. Uh, he was just nasty, and he was really had this raw, raw power, uh, very quick hands, and his punches. You know, for like a brawler or or a puncher, um, his punches were incredibly straight. Uh, so he was dangerous. He was a very dangerous guy. Uh, but you're right, that 2001 motorcycle, that's the kind of, uh, you know, gangster criminal he was, was one of those guys you see on the motorcycles. Uh, and they'd go up and steal pur uh, purses or, or chains or something off of people. And it was um, he it, going 50 miles an hour. He went on a got in a motorcycle accident, went flying off the bike around 20 feet and ended up with... Um, 
a brain bleed and they gave him the option of, you know, we could let it, it'll go away after time or we can operate. And, um, but either way, you're going to be out of boxing for at least six months. Well, wait a minute, um, wait a minute, Alex, I don't mean to interrupt you, but what year was the motorcycle accident? 2001. It wasn't discovered until 2004. Well, that's strange because he fought in California several times um, in 2003 and they require head scans. So they must, uh, yeah, that, they that's must even, not have done one or they just didn't spot it. That's that that's even now it makes that even stranger to me because you know I think he only fought once in California. No, no, he fought at least three times in California. At least that according to Boxrec, he fought Oh, okay, this Maywood, that's California. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, Maywood, Maywood he fought in Irvine. Maywood, he fought in uh Irvine, California. Um at least twice. At yeah, least you're right. Twice. twice in Irvine and once in Maywood. And yeah. there was a Caracas-Venezuela fight in between there. Yeah. But yeah, if you look at all those fights, they're all blowouts. All one-round blowouts. It's a good question. I don't know why it wasn't spotted there. Uh, you know, I mean, I, it could be one of those things. You di Different people reading an MRI see different things. Maybe it was something as simple as that. But yeah, it was, uh, it was 2004 in New York. Before this point... I mean, one of the things that happened was this was a fighter who became uh, a bit of an internet sensation um, before too many people saw him. And in part, it was because uh, Doug Fisher, uh, who now writes for The Ring, um, he uh, really took a liking to him and was, was really impressed by what he saw in, in sparring. Um, and going into that uh, fight he was supposed to have in New York, uh, Fisher had given a lot of ink. Well, it's, it's not ink, I guess. A lot of pixels, uh, you know, in the Internet age, um, had given a lot of writing about Valero. And so it was a big letdown because, yeah, I mean, we were all excited to, to get a look at this guy. Um, but because of the uh, discovery, he was relegated to fighting overseas. Uh, or Texas, and um, <laughs> right, and and that's that's the part I just don't get, you know, because Texas does follow. They, they the reason why people would fight in Texas and some other states is they don't have the requirement. They don't need to do a head scan. You, you know, uh, certain states might require a head scan after a certain age. I, I know Florida requires a, a head scan after forty or, or something, but. But once a fight, the, the, the part that I don't get is once a fighter is on the suspension list through fight facts, which every commission in the United States follows, um, they're not allowed to fight. I mean, they won't let them fight unless the state that issued the suspension lifts it. So, you know, that's one of those. Uh, and, and he only fought that one time in Texas. He went back and was fighting overseas. And then the ironic thing is when he started when he started getting in some trouble in the states it was in texas where he got in trouble he got arrested for drunk driving uh so i, I don't know it, it's hard to follow that bouncing ball i mean after that drunk driving arrest everything is pretty clear and documented but um there's a lot of there's a lot there's a big space in between for this kid um but uh but like you had said his style of fighting he was destroying people. He was he was he was knocking out people in a vicious style and fashion, and he was definitely destined to be a a, a big draw and make a lot of money. 
and uh, unfortunately, it didn't happen. Yeah, at the time, I, I think at some point um, he was brought into the wild card gym. Freddie Roach got a look at him, um, but he had been spent going around from gym to gym. It seems like doing a lot of damage to guys. Um, he sparred with guys like I said, Urbano Antione. He sparred with Juan Lascano uh, in the amateurs. One of the signs on his way up, I guess he really manhandled uh, Francisco Panchito Bojado, who uh, at the time was a rising star. Uh, out in Southern California. Um, so, yeah, he definitely was destined for big things. And at one point, Freddie Roach was looking forward to having Manny Pacquiao square off against him. And I, I can only imagine that would be... But at the time, Pacquiao was uh, engaged in uh, a rivalry with a guy by the name of uh, Eric Morales. So, you know... Valero was right on the edge of breaking into stardom. And then when he did, well, he, the first time he we saw him really with a challenge uh, was when, because he had been flattening guys. Most guys he took out in the first round, he'd only been into the second once when he fought uh, Vincente Mos, uh, Vicente Mosquera in Panama City, Panama. And uh, in that, he dropped Mosquera twice in the first and then got dropped himself in the second. And that, it just ends up a firefight and it goes 10 rounds and uh, Valero stops him. So he really did look indestructible. Um, the one, the thing about him was that was one of those things where it does make you wonder because here's this great big tough guy, nasty person who uh, probably won lots of street fights at one point in that uh, SI uh, Latino article. At one point he showed the interviewer his hands and he said, you see all these marks in my fist, these scars, these are from teeth marks uh so from street fights so but the thing about boxing that's amazing is uh you know you could be a great street fighter but somebody's got your number and uh vincent vicente mosquera dropped him and hurt him uh right down there in the third round and uh valero showing the character that he had uh you know um in, in terms of his fighting and just the toughness he comes back to win uh but yeah it was um the fight that really made him a TV star in uh, in the U.S. of A. was when he fought Antonio DeMarco, which was ended up being his last fight uh, in Monterrey, Mexico. And that just was a thrilling bout. Uh, in the first round, uh, DeMarco catches uh, Valero with an elbow as he's jabbing his elbow, uh, gouges the forehead of Valero and leaves him with this horrible bloody gash. And Texas referee Lawrence Cole allows the fight to continue with basic, basically through the whole fight, Valero has a hole in his forehead, uh, but is able to uh, just really batter Antonio DeMarco and uh, win by a, a ninth round stoppage. That, that, that blood, you know, just as soon as you mentioned that, it popped, that, that image popped in my head because that, he was a bloody mess. Um, it was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, but there's that Texas connection again. Another thing I want to mention, he uh, had uh, tied the record uh, that was 100 years old for consecutive first-round knockout streaks, 18 in a row. He tied with uh, young uh, um, uh, Otto, um, and uh, 
he had won, he had broken it, I should say, uh, at 18. The uh, young Otto had 16 straight uh, fights uh, in 1906 that ended in first-round knockout. Uh, he had it for a little bit, but then uh, Tyrone Brunson, that household name, uh, broke it in 2008 with 19 first-round knockouts. But I think the difference here is Valero uh, fought some decent guys in the, in the beginning of his career. But uh, anyway, his last fight against Antonio DeMarco, in uh, February of 2010, um, but that was, um, you know, after the trouble started. In, in 2009, like we said, he got arrested for drunk driving in Texas. Um, then uh, he was supposed to uh, fight again and was denied a visa because of the trouble. Uh, and as time went on, uh, trouble started following him. In, in 2010, um, you know, uh, well, tell us. His wife got in trouble. She was in the hospital, and uh, in came uh, Valero. Yeah, it was one of those things in uh, March of 2010. There, there's, the, you know, the writings on the wall with this kind of these kind of people uh, who, uh, you know, serial wife beater uh, people. Uh, and this is just, you know, it, it's all too predictable when you start seeing the details. But in March of 2010, uh, his 24 year old wife, uh, Jennifer Carolina Vieira, um, was uh, hospital hospitalized with cracked ribs, punctured lung. He claimed she fell. Um, you know, so there was those kind of things. There, at some point, there was a restraining order issued. Uh, eventually, he got back in contact with her. Uh, they checked into the Intercontinental Hotel in Valencia, Venezuela, about a month later in April of 2010. Uh, and um, early in the uh, wee hours of the morning, he came down to the hotel de desk all bloody with no shirt on in his pajamas. And uh, he said, I, I killed my wife. And they went up and found his wife, 24-year-old, or yeah, 24-year-old woman stabbed to death. Um, and he was arrested. He then recanted, said he did not do it, although he had just confessed to the hospital staff. Uh, they did suspect, you know, possible suicide risk. I guess they took his shirt. They took his belt. They didn't take his sweatpants. And uh, by the next morning, he ha had hanged himself in his cell. Uh, uh, a sad end to a, you know, pretty despicable human being. Uh, one of the sad things about it um, is that when you watch that Antonio DeMarco fight, which is one I saved on my TiVo, because I remember, you know, it was just an amazing fight. It was it was incredible because of the wound that Valero suffered and how he fought the entire fight with such a, a, a hole in his forehead, basically. Um, and I've saved it, even though, you know, like I said, he's just not a good good person. Um, in it, there's a couple of times where Showtime cuts to his wife and kids in the crowd. And uh, they just, uh, Doug Fisher noted that um, he never saw her smile. Um, so I, you can't help but think that her whole life was, uh, with him was a bit of, uh, you know, torment. Um, but that's, uh, you know, again, he was uh, a hell of a fighter. I will, I would like to add, and, and Edwin Valerio's mom was really hot. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of her, but geez, she was a hottie. I'll tell you that. Um, one thing that, uh, 
I, I do want to add, we're running out of time. You're going to give me the title about here in a second. But he did test positive for some drug and alcohol issues uh, um, after that incident at the hospital. And, you know, that was another thing that you can add to this. Not only did he have some uh, apparent mental issues uh, against women, but uh, when you added that with the violent past and drugs and alcohol, I mean, uh, I guess it's not that much of a surprise that the demise of Edwin Valero ended the way it did. But uh, in any event, how did he fare in uh, the game, my man? Well, in the game, you know, the game measures uh, boxing and measures your fighting ability. So in the game, he did really well. Uh, I put him in against two of the top guys right now at uh, lightweight because uh, that's where he ended his career. I think he did fight for a little while at 130, but yeah, 130 um, and then... 135 uh so i put him in against mikey garcia when they fought the first time uh he stops michael mikey garcia a tk ninth round tko he had garcia down two uh three times stopped him at two minutes and 32 seconds of the ninth when they fight a hundred times uh i kind of disagree with this but you know there's no way we could ever imagine it because we didn't see enough of valero uh but to me i think garcia's pretty polished um but valero dominates 60 victories 38 defeats two draws he only scored 29 knockouts so almost a little less than 50 percent of his wins are by knockout of the 38 wins garcia scored he stopped valero 19 times and then i put him against uh, jorge linares and the first time they fight he stops linares tko in round number eight two minutes 35 seconds he put him down cut him and uh was battering him when the referee stopped it when they fight a hundred times he really dominates valero wins 93 uh linares wins four and there's three draws uh valero stopped him 86 times and all four of linares's wins came by knockout interesting uh results with mikey garcia i think i'm i'm with you i think mikey garcia is is the real deal very polished fighter um, but uh, makes me wonder, and he certainly was eligible, but Edwin Valerio, Hall of Famer? Uh, I don't see him. I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't get on the ballot just because of his um, uh, dubi the dubiousness of him. Um, you can't no, say I don't that. Think you can't say that. Fame. I mean, definitely not. You, you can't say that. Look at how many uh, women beaters and criminals are in the Hall of Fame as it is. You know. I, well, I think that's true, but I think that um, the one. This is different. It's a murderer. Uh, so is Carlos Monzon. Yeah, Bobby um, Chacon right. beat up his wife all the time. Right. I mean, yeah. I think that's the difference. Is that uh, Monzon really is the closest thing. Um, I don't know. It's a tough one uh, because, you know, when you think about somebody like Mike Tyson, who was, you know, the reason I got into the sport. Yeah, he did a lot of despicable things, but because he's lived longer, we've seen and he's he's gotten wise in his old age. Uh, he's taken responsibility for them. And that's one of the things in America. People talk about this with Bill O'Reilly. America's forgiving. Yeah, America is forgiving if you're penitent. Uh, if you're repentant, they'll forgive you. Mike Tyson has been. Um, a guy like Edwin Valero never will be because, you know, he uh, took his own life. Right. Uh, which, in, in a way, that was sort of a... a 
a statement saying I'm guilty. And wasn't uh, that wasn't there guy? Didn't I come up? I think it was Freddie Steele that turned out to be a serial killer or something, was it? Yeah, Freddie Steele. <laughs> yeah, I I did see that article, and I do want to read more about yeah. that. I think it it was heralding a book that was coming. Yeah, out. Yeah, no, there's a book coming out, and uh, uh, Freddie Steele, he's a Hall of Famer, you know. So. so yeah, I mean that's the thing about this sport is that. Um, no, let's let's face it. If you it, if it's you a pay, hurt business, if you pay the idea that it attracts dangerous people and broken, battered people who do mean things shouldn't be a shock. But at the same time, it's also a sport, and you have very good-hearted people who want to compete in the highest form of um, you know uh, competition, and that's boxing. It's one-on-one. There, it's it's I, all you. I think it's simple. Edwin Valerio didn't send enough money to the Brophies, so he's not getting in. And uh, <laughs> you know, and 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 in and uh, in, in baseball, you got a lot of guys like Ty Cobb was a racist, mean sob, spit on people, and everything else. He's in. So uh, you know, Alex, we got to take a break. Great job as usual. Uh, this week's uh, blast from the past: Edwin Valero, a former junior lightweight and lightweight world champion, uh, twenty-seven wins, all by knockout. He only fought sixty-seven rounds, and uh, like uh, Alex uh, told us, uh, died at the young age of twenty-eight at the hands of his sweatpants. He did it himself. But uh, great job, <laughs> great job, Alex. And uh, uh, next Death time, by sweatpants. Uh, yeah, next time. Speaking of sweatpants, next time I'm going to make sure yours are on before we switch the camera. All right. So uh, uh, <laughs> sounds any, good, Billy. Yeah, right. <laughs> all right. So listen, I'm going to take a short break. When I come back, uh, I got some stuff to read real quick. Eh, you know, maybe I won't even read. I don't know. Maybe I'll take my sweatpants off. I'll be back in two. Billy C. will be right back. Network. Check out BillyCBoxing.com now or feel the wrath of the mighty mustache. Oh, that hurts. Why are you doing that to my face? I hate you. I hate you. That's BillyCBoxing.com. Consider this your warning. Now back to Billy's Billy Interact with the show at BillyCBoxing.com. And we're back. You're watching and listening to the Billy C Show. Glad you could be with us. A man coach just corrected me again. I, I I just want to thank everybody that's in the chat room all the time, keeping me straight. I kept saying Freddie Steele. It's Freddie Mills. Mills. Uh, there's a book coming out. Uh, I thought it was Freddie Steele, but uh, there's a book coming out that uh, implicates him as a as a mass murderer, <laughs> a serial killer. So keep your eyes for that. I talked about it on a, a show a few months back. But uh, anyway, uh, a couple of quick emails. Uh, this first one's from Jesse. He says, hey, Billy, I was wondering where the money's coming from from the WBSS, World Boxing Super Series. I believe the winner gets $30 million. Where's that money coming from? Uh, is it $30 million? Was that much? I thought that was a total. Um, sponsors, my man. Sponsors. Don't don't think, uh, you know, somebody's just writing a check. The sponsors uh, are getting that, you know, TV deals, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's where the money comes from. Uh, ticket sales, you know, it's all in a pool, whatever. Uh, he says, how much do you expect Wilder to make uh, to fight uh, Anthony Joshua in England uh, versus if they fought in the U.S.? Um, listen, Anthony Joshua is going to make good money if he fights. Uh, I'm sorry, Wilder and Anthony Joshua will both make some good money regardless of where the fight is. I personally think that. Uh, Deontay Wilder would be much better off fighting in England. 
they draw 90,000 people for that fight. They can up the ticket prices. Uh, he'll still get a piece of the pay-per-view. The bottom line is I, I think that um, Deontay Wilder should be able to make $10 million, uh, to fight Anthony Joshua. I, I would think that uh, you know they can't expect more than that. Um, he says, supposedly the HBO triple header in, uh, with Lubin, Lara, and Hurd card peaked at 685000 Is that good? Yeah, that's good. If that's true, that's good. He says, uh, can you do a blast, of the, a blast from the past with Diego Corrales? I will put it on the list, Jesse. Thank you very much for the email. One more email. This one is from my man, Joel. Joel says, hey, Billy C., uh, here's an article for you to read. Uh, and he uh, sent me sent me an article about uh, a guy uh, who basically I'll read the rest of the email and it will tell you uh, he saw an article. He says, I saw an article about a Filipino fighter who died after a sparring session this past Sunday. He allegedly submitted a false CAT scan result and he couldn't because he couldn't afford the actual test. My question is, uh, isn't the promoter of the card responsible for paying for a fighter's CAT scan? I'm not sure how everything works with the medicals and who's responsible uh, whose responsibility is that? Maybe uh, you can clear this up for me. He says, with so much focus on cat scan developing retired football players, CET, retired football players, do you ever think boxing will become a sport in the future where there's a big drop in the number of athletes participating because of concern over the same issue that the football players have? I love watching football and boxing as well as MMA, but it's always in the back of my mind how much damage these athletes are taking, and I want uh, them to live fu a full, healthy life after retiring. What's your thoughts? First and foremost, the uh, uh, responsibility of a CAT scan, depending upon the commission, for example, the state of New York and the state of New Jersey, I know for sure, f pay the bill. Um, you know, they foot the bill for that. But most cases, it's the responsibility of whoever. Uh, if the state requires it, they want you to submit a CAT scan. Uh, how a fake one could have been submitted is, is, is pretty, pretty tough. Um, and the truth of the matter is, is how stupid was the commission? I mean, first of all, because of the medical laws, you know, you can't just, you know, have one in, in your back pocket. Oh, here's my CAT scan. You know, it has to be submitted. You have to have permission. Uh, so how that got through all of those, uh, te you know, loopholes, I, I don't know. But that's uh, a very sad situation as far as uh, CTE developing in football plays and boxing. Um, listen, the risks are there with all kinds of contact sports and I, you know the athletes need to be made aware of it prior to it and un fully understand and then it's their decision uh, as far as football versus boxing I've talked about the uh, results football is a sport where you're actually launching yourself and the uh, possibility of getting those injuries are greater than in boxing because in boxing if you're taught correctly you're trying to avoid the punches you know, so, you know, you're not getting that brain. The, the statistics for brain uh, injuries, football versus boxing. Now, keep in mind, there's way more people that play football. Uh, at the NFL level, 15, uh, I'm sorry, 20% have uh, suffered some type of a uh, uh, head injury in, in professional football. And in, uh, in boxing, the, the percentage is, is around 2%, lo less than 2. It's 1.6-something uh, based on a study uh uh, in the New York Times a couple of years ago. But uh, anyway, thanks for the emails. Um, we uh, have our trivia question. Uh, listen, I'm going to give you a, 
a big-time hint. Which boxer was a longtime sparring partner for one heavyweight champ, knocked him down in sparring, and then had a victory over another one-time heavyweight champ? I gave you a bunch of uh, you know hints yesterday and the day before, but I'm going to tell you the longtime sparring partner this guy was for the heavyweight. I'm not going to tell you who he was, obviously, and I'm not going to tell you the other guy's name, but he was a longtime sparring partner for Rocky Marciano. He knocked Rocky Marciano down in sparring. Who was the other guy? Well, you don't have to know uh, who he was, but uh, uh, the other one-time guy uh, was a champion. If you know this guy's name and you're the first one to email me, Billy at Talkin Boxing, T-A-L-K-I-N-B-O-X-I-N-G.com, you're going to win a copy of the Title Belt Championship computer game, the same Title Belt Championship computer game that Alex does the comparisons too. So uh, good luck to that. Today, on this day in boxing history, October 25th, in 1968, Freddie Little knocks out Sandro Magazzotti in the ninth round to win the world junior middleweight title. took place in Rome. On this day in 1960, Alphonse Salami wins a 15-round decision over Fetty Gilroy to win the vacant European world bantamweight title in London. On this day in 1990, Ricardo Lopez knocks out Hiduki Oshahi in the fifth round to win the WBC strawweight title in uh, Tokyo. On this day in 1980, Mike Weaver knocks out Jerry Kotsia in the 13th round to retain his WBA World Heavyweight title in South Africa. On this day in 1986, Mike McCallum knocks out Saeed Saeua in the 9th round to retain his World Junior Middleweight title to place in France. And on this day in 1990, Evander Holyfield knocks out Buster Douglas in the 3rd round to win the World Heavyweight title, and that took place in Las Vegas. Hey, man, that concludes our show for today. But make sure you tune in tomorrow morning. Same bat time, same bat channel. Until then, ciao, baby.